Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome grace and peace to you. man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of our Lord. So this is a very vivid story, and uh, it is a story. It's called a parable. Last week was, uh, I thought, a really funny and winsome and uh, wise teaching by Tyler Schwartz. And I thought, uh, if, you, if you didn't hear it, you should go back on the podcast and listen to it. It was very good. Uh, but Tyler did something that I think 
uh, parables are meant to do. Um, I'm going to, again, borrow a lot from one of my favorite New Testament scholars, A.J. Levine. She is amazing. Um, She says this about parables, and I want you to take this in for a moment about what is a parable trying to do. The parables, if we take them seriously, not as meaning, but as soliciting our meaning-making, and if we allow ourselves to be open to various interpretations, they become not tools for shaming or inculcating guilt, but for good, hard lessons, learned and with a sense of playfulness. I thought Tyler did a wonderful job of that last week. Um, Parables sort of tell us something that we already know, but we're disconnected from. Something that deep down we have a sense of and we probably understand, but because of time or because of fear or because of preoccupations and circumstances, we somehow like disconnect from that thing, that truth, that reality. And parables bring us back in touch in a way that often feels uncomfortable. Uh, Yesterday, I uh, officiated a wedding, and uh, we couldn't line up a babysitter, so uh, I basically had this this, uh, uh, invitation out to my daughter to to join me, and she took it, thankfully, uh, and she was so excited. She got dressed up, and I got dressed up. It was a, a black tie affair and it was in the Upper East Side. So we were getting ready for this date, and we were so excited about it. Um, We were looking our best, we walk out the door, and as we push the button for the elevator, we're standing there waiting. Now, outside of our elevator is this big mirror, and uh, Lucy and I are really similar, um, so we were drawn to the mirror uh, together. And, uh, and we're just like kind of, you know, getting everything right and, you know, how am I looking, last sense of this. And, uh, and we head into the elevator and I look at her and I say, Lucy, you look stunning. You look stunning. And she literally took my breath away. I was like, she is so beautiful. And, uh, and she said, thank you. And beep, beep, we're going down the floors. And I don't know why, but I had this question sort of like arise in my own mind, which was, how do I look? (laughs) And so I asked her, how do I look? And she looked at me and she goes, oh, you look great, Dad, but the light's really shining on your scalp. (laughs) Do you mean my hair? And so all of a sudden, that one little phrase was like, like a katana blade that just like went into my brain and stood there and then like the cracks started coming out. And the whole evening, I was just working that phrase in my mind. And I was like, what, what, did, what did she mean? And, and, and I'm like, I, you know, I looked into the mirror and I was laughing because this, earlier this week, I was told that there's a, a placard in a, a private school in the neighborhood that should go on name that says, have the confidence of a mediocre white guy. And I thought to myself, I think I'm that guy. (laughs) Like I looked in the mirror and what I saw when I'm in my tux was like Matt, oh no, what did I see? Bradley Cooper at the Oscars, that's what I saw. (laughs) And I got into the elevator and after that comment, I felt like Matthew McConaughey in Dallas Buyers Club, you know? (laughs) Like I, I just, my ego, my sense of self went from here to here with one little comment. And then I'm like, did she do that on purpose? And like I'm working it through, and I'm also like, wait a minute, 
she's the cause of this, like partially. She's to blame partially. And then it moved to just other things like moments of embrace. And I'm like, you know what? I'm almost 40. Like, it's okay. I can, I can be losing a little hair up front. I mean, Heath Ledger was losing hair and it didn't seem to do anything for his, that, and then I was like, don't follow that too far. Um, so I'm, I'm like working this in my mind, but by the end of the night, I had totally embraced who I'm. I'm like, I like who I am. I really like it. I, I enjoy it, I embrace it, and you're not gonna get in my head, even though you were in my head all night and you didn't even realize it, Lucy Rizzino. But that's what a parable does. A parable is a story that's meant to get in your mind and like do work. And it's not intended to solve all of your problems and give you these really neat and tidy answers to the most profound questions of life. It's intended to raise the right questions and get us wrestling with those questions in meaningful ways. And I think this parable, unfortunately, the way we think of parables, like to even teach a parable or to preach a parable is kind of an oxymoron. It's like getting a cheat code to a game. And did we ever really get satisfied by beating Contra? You know, I mean, the 80s kids are, are revealing themselves right now. Um, we never really learn anything from cheat codes. Like, it's fun, we get the answer we want, we get the fix, but there's not a lot of growth. Like, the video games that I beat that I didn't have the cheat code for, I felt so much better, and I like to think I'm much better off because of them. And parables are that way. If I just get here and I tell you the answers, this is what the parable means, I kind of like ruin the parable for you. Um, so what I see my job as, as a teacher or as a preacher, is to give you sort of the tools to hear the story and have the force of the story the way that Jesus' original hearers would have heard and, and uh, internalized the story. Because Jesus famously rarely explain, explains any of his parables. And so, as we consider this parable, I want to begin with this first verse, and I want to start to set the stage for these characters. Uh, in verse 19, we read, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. Now, a couple things here. First of all, any time in the Gospels when the, the phrase is used, and there was a rich man, it always has a negative connotation. I went back and looked at every occurrence where uh, there was a rich man shows up. It, it's never positive. There's always some sort of cautionary tale that is about to ensue. And that is partly because... Jesus' original audience were largely peasants. Uh, they were largely not landholders. Uh, they were not wealthy. Um, often many of them had had to sell their family land in order to pay uh, their sort of tax obligation. And they were in this like system and status where they were becoming poorer and poorer under the thumb of the Roman Empire and also some of the, the Jewish uh, compliance with that empire. And so there is this sort of like dark sense, a, a foreboding sense, right off the bat to Jew, J Jesus' original hearers. Um, there's no name given, which is kind of a knowing jab on Jesus' part. Uh, if you were at a party, uh, it's like today. I mean, like you tend to remember people or remember people's names or you, you pay special attention to people of status uh, or of wealth, people who might be able to help you along in your career or in uh, your goals in life. And it's just very easy to forget the names of people who don't mean anything to you. And Jesus is telling a story here of an extraordinarily rich person. We'll see this in a minute. And he doesn't name him. 
The story is meant to, that, that we're meant to pick up on here from this introduction is a story of opulence. This man is a man who is dressed in purple, we're told, which is uh, one of the most expensive textiles of Jesus' time. Uh, he's not only dressed in purple, but also fine linen. And fine linen, uh, it, this is a term used in multiple places in Jesus' time, um, but these would have been like feast garments. Uh, your it would be like a black tie affair. You may own a tuxedo, but you don't wear the tuxedo every day. You wear it for special occasions. And that's what these fine linens were about. He goes on to say, uh, the text goes on to show us that what's on his body is also matched by what goes into his body. Um, this phrase that we have in our text, lived in luxury, is actually a word that literally means feasting, and it has these sort of connotations to it, like joy and cheering and excitement or enthusiasm. Um, this is like a feast word. Uh, you should have in your mind, like, what happens at Madison Square Garden or what happens at, uh, um, I'm drawing a blank right now, uh, Music Hall, Carnegie Hall. Hello. Um, that's the kind of thing that you should have in mind. That's the, the environment. It's the atmosphere. It's the mood of this term is celebration, excitement, cheering. Now, at this point, you probably are asking, well, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? So the guy has good taste in fashion and good taste in food. What's the problem here? Is Jesus critiquing culture? I mean, are we supposed to cancel fashion week? Should we cancel restaurant week? Um, you know, what of this city would be left if Jesus were to have Jesus' way? Now, what I want to point out is I don't think at all that the obscenity here of the rich man is uh, the uh, extravagance. I don't think that's the obscenity of the rich man for a couple reasons. Uh, first of all, even this language for, uh, for fine linen was the same term used for the high priests when they would uh, put on their fine linens for the holy feast days, for the high holidays. Um, so when they were gather, gathering the people together to tell the stories of Israel, they, they put on these fine linens. And this term for feasting, or what we have here in our text is living in luxury, it's the same term commanded in Deuteronomy for what to do when you gather for festival. And in fact, it doesn't only, only say come and feast with like joy and cheering and celebration, but also invite the outsider and the poor and the stranger to your table as you do it. So in the Jewish imagination, in the Jewish world, uh, fine linens were not a bad thing. Feasting and celebration, what's translated here as living in luxury, not a bad thing. When it's in its appropriate time, an appropriate place. Now, what is obscene in this story and this description is not the extravagance, it's the frequency. Look at what the text says. Summed up by this one phrase, every day. And you don't see it here, but the tense of the verb, uh, who dressed in purple, is a, a, a tense that indicates this is an ongoing affair. It's like the guy who wakes up and puts on the tux every day and then goes out to, you know, name the restaurant. This character is, uh, he's intentionally larger than life. He's someone no one would relate to. 
You know, sometimes you'll hear this parable and people will be like, well, people thought that rich people were blessed by God and, uh, and therefore they were surprised by this role reversal. No, this man by no one's standards, Roman, Jewish, or otherwise, is a righteous person. Uh, in the Roman world, you would have looked at this guy and you would have been like, okay, ost ostentatious wealth, that's one thing. But to not participate in the patronage system, to like leave someone at your gate with no regard for them, that would have been obscene and heinous. Um, in the Jewish world, the same thing, the sort of moral aim, we've already seen it in my references, that the Torah taught there was an obligation, a responsibility for the poor and for the stranger and for the marginalized. So this is not someone who's being set up as this person everybody thought would be a hero and whoa, what a crazy reversal, Jesus. No, everybody would have expected this for this man. He's larger than life. And on purpose, I think. Not many people can relate uh, to that kind of extravagance, the kind of person who can wake up and be at the apex of fashion every single day. Some of you are like, but, but, but I kind of am. <laughs> or to be like feasting on the most succulent, wonderful, you know, uh, food every day. Now, the, the Jewish vision was one of feasting and fasting. It was a time of joy and celebration at times, but of simplicity and generosity at others. And the rich man is shown here to have no balance whatsoever. He's kind of pushed to this crazy degree that most of us can't relate to, and that's on purpose. And then you look at uh, verse 20, and we get this other character. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores. Now, here the poor man is named. And I begin with the poor man because uh, it, it, our text shows at his gate as the front, and that sounds better in English, but the, the text actually fronts, now there was a poor man, this poor guy. So you got the rich man, and now you got the poor man who's given a name, Lazarus, and it says that he was laid at the gate, uh, likely because people knew that if he was put in this like high traffic area, he'd have a likelihood of getting the help that he needed. It'd be like uh, a beggar sort of like positioning themselves in a very major thoroughfare, say between like the Goldman headquarters and the hot lunch spots. Like you're gonna get good traffic there and there's a higher likelihood that you're gonna get help. Um, so he's laid here at the gate and unfortunately our translation says beggar and a lot of translations translate this beggar, um, which is unfortunate because the word is just the word that's used for poor. It's the same word used for blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, it's the same word used when Paul's taken up a collection for the poor churches, and it says these churches were poor. You know, the churches were not begging. Uh, the, the poor widow who gave her her, her donation at the temple, um, she's used with the same word, poor, and she wasn't begging. There's another word for begging, and it's not used here. Um, so we're reading a lot into it by translating it this way. This guy is just poor. In fact, he's not asking for anything in this story. The, the, the poor man, Lazarus, says not one word throughout this entire sequence. He is completely silent. The only one who will do the talking, the only one who is given voice is the rich person, which is a clue in, this, in the story that this is where our focus should be. This is the subject of the story, the rich man. We have this poor person, Lazarus. He's covered with sores. And a lot of people here, they're like, oh, see, he's, uh, 
probably has leprosy and he's like a source of uncleanness. And so there was like this resistance to the unclean and they critique the Jewish purity system and they're like, hey, this guy was just trying to follow the Jewish purity system. But this isn't necessary at all. There's no indication here that his sores are leprous. Uh, he's more like the character Job who has had catastrophe fall upon him and is uh, now experiencing these sores and this sickness, and uh, the people who should be consoling him and helping him are not. They have forgotten or abandoned him. This poor person, Lazarus, covered with sores, and verse 21 says, he's longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, and even the dogs came and licked his sores. And once again, a lot of readers are like, see the dogs, this is, he's unclean, and this is maybe like a reference to like, the, the Gentiles and the Gentile inclusion in the church. Um, but people like that often haven't read like, the texts in Jesus' time that talk about the Jews having pets for uh, dogs as pets. Dogs aren't intrinsically unclean in the Jewish imagination. Uh, and A.J. Levine, who is Jewish, is quick to point this out. Uh, dogs are companions. And there's an irony here in the story. It's like, okay, this is a guy who's in need of help and comfort, and the person who's best positioned to help is doing nothing. The dogs are doing something, but this guy's not even doing anything. Even the dogs can see a need here where the rich man cannot see. Verse 21 tells us of these lick stores, and we've talked about the poverty and the begging and all of that. Um, what I want to focus on here is verse 22. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, and the rich man also died, and he was buried. So here the story sets up these two characters. We don't know a lot about them, but the narrative cues are setting up sympathy for the poor man and a sense of, like, uh, disgust or, uh, you know, like, anger toward the rich man. And now we got the afterlife. And post-mortem uh, reversals are very popular uh, in almost every culture. You can find stories of people who live certain ways in, in a high contrast fashion, and then after death, there's this great reversal, and it's meant to leave us thinking and wrestling. And this story is no exception. Jesus is taking a very familiar uh, sort of literary device, and he's working it with his audience. And he's taking the folklore of Jewish imagination. Uh, in the Jewish imagination, there are lots of stories between, you know, the, the Hebrew uh, scriptures, what we call the Old Testament often, and what we now call the New Testament. Um, there were a lot of stories that built up in between those, those writings about what the afterlife was like. Usually featured Abraham very prominently, and uh, a lot of these features we read here in Jesus' storytelling is popular imagination. It'd be like us saying, you know, the pearly gates with Peter right there. We know what, what someone's talking about, even though there's nothing really in the Bible about that. Um, it's just folk imagination, and Jesus is playing with that furniture to tell this story. By the way, what does that mean? That means that you don't, you kind of miss the point of this story if you're reading it to uh, figure out what is afterlife like. Like, if your main question is, I wonder what happens after we die. This is not the story where you'd go to, like, observe and find the details. Um, the point of the story is something other than that. But what is the point of the story? Verse 22, setting up for us, the time came when the beggar died, the angels carried him to Abraham's side, the rich man also died, and he was buried. Now, Abraham, he's the only other named character in all the parables of Jesus. 
All the people who are named in Jesus' parables, you got them all here in this story. Lazarus and Abraham. And that tells us something important. Abraham was an icon of hospitality. Uh, I had a, the fortune of uh, traveling to the Holy Land, and uh, I've done this several times, and there was a, one occasion where I had uh, lunch with a group with a rabbi, and uh, we were able to, to give the rabbi uh, a text to prepare, to think about, to consider, and then to do sort of a study with us so that we could taste what it was like to study Torah with a rabbi. And so uh, I suggested a Bible uh, verse uh, from the prophets. It's one of my favorites. It's where uh, the prophet says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus quotes it several times. And I was like, I wonder what the rabbi will say here. And fascinating conversation over lunch. He just like zigzags through all these stories and traditions and folklore. Uh, and what I came away with was this one sort of uh, this one big takeaway, which was Abraham is the icon. He is the symbol of hospitality and welcome, of mercy. So anytime you're reading about mercy or thinking about mercy, somewhere in the rabbinic debate, you're going to start to weave Abraham into that conversation. As you remember in Genesis 18, Abraham is the one who welcomed in the three strangers and showed them hospitality. Abraham's the one who saw the corrupt city and kept pleading for it, kept saying, ah, I know that this, this is like about to get judged, but if there's a there's hundred righteous people, would you spare it? And then he learns there's not a hundred. He's like, uh, 90, 80, 15, five. Like he's just bartering with God to show mercy on this corrupt city. And that's the kind of person that Abraham is. But how does Abraham uh, read here in this story? He doesn't quite read as merciful as you would expect. Now, he does have Lazarus with him. Now, the text tells us in the next verse uh, where Lazarus is. Um, our translation says that Lazarus was by his side. Literally, it's, he was in Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom, his chest, reclining. This is a, a picture and a posture of intimacy. It's a, it's a picture and a posture of comfort. You know, the, the people who lie on our bosoms are people who are children, babies, lovers, or people in times of grief that we're bringing in for a hug. Like the bosom is a place of tender love and exchange. And here, Lazarus is seen to be in Abraham's bosom. He's being comforted. The icon of mercy has shown mercy to one who tasted no mercy in his life. And by the way, it, you know, how you hear these stories often um, d is determined by where you find yourself on the spectrum. Like, okay, Lazarus, extreme poverty. Uh, the rich man, extreme wealth. We probably, no one in this room can 100% can relate with either character. But you probably trend one direction or another, and you have your sense of identification or solidarity or compassion or, or maybe even like being pricked a little bit. Jewish, Jesus' original audience would have been like, oh, the poor guy. He's being comforted. That's good news for me because I've been, you know, screwed. I've been, uh, you know, treated poorly or exploited. Uh, I'm having a tough time in life. I'm suffering. Um, this is good news. There's, there's comfort for me. There is justice that awaits me. And those who might have found themselves a little more on the wealthy side would have been hearing this in a way of like warning. Like, huh, I wonder if, am I like the rich man? 
Like, am I, am I paying attention? Am I seeing what's in front of me? Am I ignoring it? Am I appropriately engaged with those in need in my life? It raises these kinds of questions, as it should. Now, verse 23 says, <laughs> this rich man is in torment, and Lazarus is by his side. And what we see in verse 24 is there's this exchange that happens, and it's kind of like the parable of the prodigal son. Remember, I did two weeks ago, I did this sermon, and I was like, you know, I don't, I don't know, I'm not convinced the prodigal son actually repented. Like, I think the prodigal son was sick and tired of where he was in life and figured out a way to get back to something a little more comfortable and enjoyable and then was just surprised and overwhelmed with the father's embrace. But there's really no signal that he has this true repentance. Uh, the story wants us to focus on the older brother and that conversation with the father. And I think the same thing's true here. I mean, there's no sense in which the rich person gets it. I mean, the whole time you're reading this and you're like, oh my gosh, he still doesn't see it. He still doesn't get it. And verse 24 is a great clue into that. Look at this. He calls to him, Father Abraham. So he's appealing to that sort of like uh, patriarchy, that father figure, this icon of mercy, expecting mercy, just like the younger son calls out to the father and expects to sort of be received back into the family. So this presumptuous plea goes to Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and, and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. So he sees Lazarus. A, he knows his name, uh, indictment number one. Um, Lazarus knows the name of this guy and has not helped him. Number two, he still doesn't get it. Why? Because he still sees Lazarus as a servant. A servant to him. <laughs> Inferior to him. He cannot see Lazarus with the dignity Lazarus deserves. Jesus views Lazarus with dignity. He names him. Abraham views Lazarus with dignity. He embraces him. And even Jesus will do this with people and critique people who can't see. Remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the story where Jesus looks at this woman and says, have you not seen that this is a daughter of Abraham who has been tormented her entire life? Jesus says, I see the dignity of this person. She's a child of Abraham, and, La and the rich man could not see this in Lazarus. And he still can't see it in this moment of agony. All he sees is his agony and a servant or the help who's there to help him. Verse 24, 25. Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm that's been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, and nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So in Lazarus' life, what separated them was a gate, and now what separates them is a gorge. There is this chasm that's been set between them. And we're asked left to wrestle, like, what to make of this chasm? Is this like, uh, is this how the afterlife works? There's this, like, magical chasm between the, the righteous and the unrighteous, and it's like, and you can see each other, and you can interact, and that's kind of weird to think about if you think about it too long. And then you're like, wait, and then we can talk, but we can't go to each other or, like, interact. Like, what is that? And I wonder, like, what is this chasm? Is it made by God? We're not told. We're not said, God made this chasm. This is just the way it works. Sorry, can't cross. You shall not pass. 
Instead, we're left to wonder what to make of it. And I wonder if this isn't a chasm of uh, the rich man's own making. And the reason I wonder that is because the rich man is still doesn't get it. Like, we don't see any repentance. Like, even if we did see some repentance, maybe things would be different. We're left to wonder. I wonder what would happen if he had learned the lesson of his life and had opened his heart once, to, to, finally, to Lazarus and to the sort of icon and the memory and the spirit of Abraham and, therefore, to God. What would have, what would have been his fate? I mean, we don't know. These are questions the text doesn't say. But there is this chasm, and there's no crossing back and forth. You ever have someone in your life who's like really, really struggling and you felt like you've done a lot to help, but you just can't quite get in there? Like you can't, you can't convince them with an argument to like change or to adjust. Uh, you can't, you, you try to model it. You try all the things that you, you know to do to help someone, but it's like I just can't get through to them. And that's the way love works. There's, it, it, short of just control and manipulation, which isn't love. We can make people do stuff in our lives by squeezing them or putting the pressure on. We have our ways to create leverage, but that's not love. Love looks at a person and knows that really responsibility for change lies in that person. And unless that person wakes up, unless that person sees, unless that person understands, they're never going to be able to get their stuff turned around. And I think that's kind of the case here with the rich man. The rich man is in agony. He's clearly in this reversal, which should be telling him something. And yet he's still stuck in the loop of Lazarus is my servant. Uh, and then we see where else he goes with this. Look at how the story continues. He not only continues to treat Lazarus as a servant, but he starts to think of his family. And he appeals to Abraham. He says, listen, I have five brothers. Uh, let him warn them so that they will also not come to this place of torment. Now, interestingly enough, this might be painting a portrait that uh, the rich man was like, kind of like a lonely Scrooge-type personality because he's not talking about his wife. He's not talking about his children. He's just got his brothers. Now, he's appealing for the well-being of his brothers, and you're like, that's admirable. That's good, right? But even, even he has lost sight of the suffering that he uh, hasn't lifted a finger to help and may have been causing in the first place. He's in this place of torment. Lazarus is up with Abraham, and all he can think about still is his like five brothers. He's still not seeing the big picture. He's still not seeing Lazarus as Lazarus is and was. He's still not seeing poverty as poverty is and marg the marginalized as the marginalized are. He's still very familiarly concerned with his five brothers. And he asks for a warning. And again, he says, I got just the right person for the job. <laughs> send Lazarus. Like, send him on the errand. Let him do the dirty work here. Let him go tell my, my brothers that uh, this is a really like, gnarly situation that can be avoided. But he still doesn't get it. Abraham responds in a way that I think is the punch of this story. So I want you to feel this. Abraham replies and he says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And the rich man's like, I don't believe what I'm hearing. You're the icon of mercy and your best response to me pleading for my brothers is, hey, they have Moses and the prophets. 
Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. And then the rich man says, no, 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 Father Abraham, if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. And then Abraham famously responds, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now at this point, I back up and I read this and I'm like, isn't this the whole point of Christianity? Hey, someone rose from the dead, therefore, but maybe it's not. We tend to look at miracles and signs, like things Jesus did or resurrection, as a proof that something's valid, or as uh, a, a sort of ammo in your argumentation to convince or persuade someone of something. And certainly, Jesus' resurrection has been used like that and related to like that. But maybe this story pushes against that perspective and almost poses the same question to us. Like, um, are you not impressed with, are you not uh, compelled by the intrinsic worth of this way of life that's been spelled out for you? Like the Torah cast a vision for a life that was possible in a really corrupt and greed-centered and sin-filled world. The Torah cast a beautiful vision of what that looked like, including great feasts, telling the great stories, and including the outsider at your table. I mean, there's just this beautiful picture of what a good and just life can look like. Do you not just find that intrinsically compelling? Do you need uh, some weird, like, you know, Jesus doing loop-de-loops over the Sea of Galilee to convince you that this way is worth following? And in some ways, you back up and you go, wait, isn't Jesus doing this? Like, isn't Jesus sending a warning with this afterlife parable? Saying, hey, if you don't want your fate to be like that, do this. Doesn't that cut against what Abraham's saying here? Abraham's like, I'm not going to go do all that extra stuff or send them. They won't believe it. If they're not believing this intrinsic worth, this compelling vision, why would the miracle convince them otherwise? And I think this is the point of the parable. What do you know, what do you understand as right and good that you don't do anything about? What do you understand as noble and beautiful and virtuous and wonderful? Almost like Tyler was talking about littering, right? You don't litter because one day you'll get to litter all you want. You don't litter because somehow as you figure out the story, you go, oh, this is like there's a better way to live and that's more compelling than littering. And Jesus isn't here giving us a new rule book. Uh, nowhere in the story is he like, okay, if the rich man would have helped him once, no, maybe five times. No, maybe if he would have like, done what the Good Samaritan did and pay his medical bills and then get him on his... There's nothing of that. The story's open-ended, and we are left to wrestle. What is our responsibility in this life? What do we do with whatever wealth we have? What do we do with whatever position in life that we have either received or earned or whatever, somewhere in between. What do we do with that? And Jesus isn't giving us easy answers to that. We're left to wrestle. Now, I also wish Jesus would have been like, now, don't you realize that you actually, the way you get to heaven when you die is by just trusting in me alone and my death on the cross and not in your own works and not in the law or anything like, like that would have been so much easier if that was like what Jesus said. But Jesus tells the story about the afterlife and these reversal of fates, and then he's like, "Yeah, some people just don't get it." 
Some people just don't get it, and they're not going to get it by some super flashy sign. The only way any of us ever get it is when we are just wooed by the goodness of something. And that's, ironically, I think, why what Jesus preached was called the good news. Jesus came and he had good news on his lips and he painted this beautiful, mesmerizing picture of what life could look like when we act like God is in charge, when God gets God's way, this kingdom of God thing. And it's not around this coercive pressure, like just like Abraham isn't trying to high pressure Lazarus, or I mean uh, the, the rich man into a response. God doesn't high pressure us into a response either. The way is laid bare. The choice is in front of us. The stories are here. Will you engage them? Will you make space for them? Will you wrestle with them? Will you respond to them? How is God guiding you? It's not a guilt trip. It's not, uh, as A.J. Levine warned us, not a thing to inculcate guilt or shame on you. It's meant to get you wrestling, get you working hard, even if it's in a playful way, to come to some faithful conclusions. And I wonder like, what the faithful conclusions are for you. I wonder what it means for you. What, 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 what do you know that you're not doing anything about right now? Jesus so many times emphasized this. He's like, you know who's my family? It's the people who do the way that I'm talking about. They do the will of God. They don't just talk about it. He knew Lazarus' name. He knew Abraham's name. He knew the stories. He knew it all, but he wasn't doing anything with it. What are you doing with it? This is the life of faith. Faith is the open heart to God that leads to the open heart of our neighbor. And it doesn't just stay at an open heart like thoughts and prayers. It results in action. That's where I'm pricked by this story. Like, what am I doing with my faith? And I'm not doing this to like tie up a heavy burden on myself and go like, oh, if I just did more, God would love me more. No, I'm not worried about that. Like, I know God loves me as I am. The question I'm asking is, how do I become a better person? Like, how do I lean into love? How do I add good news to this world because of this good news that's coming at me from God? And I think that's the, the tension that we're left with in this text. And so I leave it with you in love as I leave it with myself, and I hope it works on you like Lucy's bald comment to me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for... Uh, we thank you for your love, which is, you know, from the, the teaching of Jesus, is steady, it's constant, it is uh, unequivocal, it doesn't show favoritism or preference. It's just there, and it's always there, and it's always available. And yet, sometimes we ignore it, sometimes we presume upon it, sometimes we just don't get it, we're swept up by other things. And so we ask this story would do something with us this week. Help us to see things we wouldn't see. Help us to ask hard questions of our lives that we wouldn't normally ask. Help us to change. <laughs> Help us to become more loving. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.